Lord, I need you. Can we just sing that again? The chorus, Lord, I need you. Let's stand. I don't know how this sermon's going to go, but I'm excited. I don't know what key we're in either. A flat, B flat, let's just do it. Now you can sit down. <laughs> Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, where sin runs deep, your grace is more. Where you are, I am free. Holiness is Christ in me. Father, what true words. What words we need to take to heart this morning. What words that, by your grace, we will see explained clearly in our text this morning. Gracious Father, we need you. You're the one who guides our hearts. So we ask boldly, we ask humbly, that your spirit would illumine this morning's text to our minds and our hearts, that we might grow in our affections for you. Oh, Father, may we internalize your word that we might not sin against you, that we might not have any grievous ways about us. Help us see clearly who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And lead us in your transforming power to live lives worthy of the gospel. Father, we pray all this for the glory of Christ Jesus and in his name. Amen. Amen. Saturday morning cartoons. Remember those? Saturday, we didn't have any of the streaming stuff. We had to wait for Saturday morning. I remember this being the highlight, one of the highlights of my childhood. I had this huge orange fish bowl that I would fill plump full with Fruit Loops, just splash milk all over, and I would plop down right in front of the TV, console TV, mind you, sitting on the ground, literally right in front of the TV, too close, as mom would say. But I was sitting there, and I would watch the classics, the classics like Tom and Jerry. Can I get an Amen. Classics like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I know they're still around, but not as cool. Classics like DuckTales. Remember that one? Yeah? And classics like the Looney Tunes. You know what? It never failed that during an episode, one of the main characters would find himself or herself at a crossroads in which... They had to choose between good and evil, right? And this was typically characterized or characterized by having an angel-like figure on one side of the character and a demon-like character on the other side. 
And so the main character found himself or herself in this struggle. Do I do good? Do I run toward the light? Or do I turn away from that and do what is evil, do what is dark, do what is maybe most pleasurable in the moment, but none not good? And so there was this brief wrestling. But then because it's a kid's cartoon, the main character would always choose the right way just before the closing credits. Everything, all the pieces would come together. Everybody would be happy and live happily ever after. And so the ending credits, no one cried. Everybody was in a good place. Do you remember this? Well, the text that we find ourselves in this morning presents us with a similar situation. A situation in which there's a group of people caught in the middle between making a right decision and being lured away by false teaching. And in the last sermon, we saw that John's audience was made up of three groups of people. We labeled the first group the committed. This group was primarily the apostles and those who held fast to the message of eternal life as handed down by Jesus himself. The third group, we labeled the corrupt. This group, this made up those who had abandoned right teaching about Jesus, his character, his work, and they were proclaiming a better way to have fellowship with God. And this better way was one that was abandoned, abandoning meaningful interaction with the material world. They saw everything that was material as evil and undesirable. But between these two extremes, between these two groups, we have another group, and we labeled them the confused. These were the vulnerable folks who were hearing two opposing messages, and they stood at a crossroads of making a decision of which path to follow. And John's concern is that his audience experienced biblical fellowship with God and with his people. And thus he wants the vulnerable crowd to dismiss false claims and run into safety, into the realm of where they must be to enjoy God and grow in him. We see that very clearly in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. In other words, he doesn't want them to miss the mark of what true fellowship is. This is exactly what the corrupt group had done. They had missed the mark of biblical fellowship, and they were tempting others to follow suit. And so John, in tender concern for his audience and bold correction in the face of his opposers, tackles the opposition in hopes of helping the confused crowd return to and stay on the right path. That's where we find ourselves this morning. So let us stand in honor of God and his spirit-inspired word as we read chapter 1 of 1 John, beginning verse 5, and we will read through the second verse in chapter 2. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of God. You may be seated. This is the message we have heard from him, the Lord himself, and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John's starting point for handling his opposition is the character of God. He doesn't begin by highlighting manifestations of error. Rather, he starts where any of us should start when we're trying to figure out some sort of spiritual conundrum with the question, who is God? So verse 5 serves as a sort of thesis statement going into the text. In John's mind, everything that follows stems from this reality that God is light. And because he is light, there is no darkness in him. And the Greek text reads, and darkness in him not is none. That's pretty strong language. That's a way of communicating an absolute. There is absolutely no darkness, no evil associated with God and his character. Now we have some southern folks in here, and that's all right. In the southern vernacular, maybe if you're from Tennessee, I think one of our pastors could be from Tennessee, they might say, there ain't none. There ain't none. There ain't none darkness in him. Amen? This is who we're talking about. The God in in whom there is no darkness. This is a very important starting point for John's argumentation because his opposers were about the business of denying the reality of sin in the life of a follower of God. And we'll see that, Lord willing, more clearly as we advance in this morning's text. John wants to make it beyond clear that God is the sinless one, period. He needs to make this case that sin is an experience of the unbeliever and even of the one following after God. And so he begins by contrasting light and darkness. And this concept of light finds its footing in the Old Testament. We see light as a motif In creation, Genesis 1, 3 through 4, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. We see light as a motif in God's delivering, his leading, and leading the people out of Egypt. In the Exodus, he led his people out of Egypt by night in a pillar of fire that gave them what? Light. And David being delivered 
by, from his enemies, including Saul, said in 2 Samuel 22, 29, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. Did you know that the book of Isaiah has the most occurrences of light in the Old Testament? Roughly 29 uses, most of which point to the coming Messiah who would deliver his people from their bondage, Jesus. So moving into the New Testament then, we see Jesus saying things like this in John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Matthew 4, verse 16 is cited directly from Isaiah 42, verse 7, which reads, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so this declaration that God is light is a penetrating description of the being and nature of God. It means that He is absolute in His glory. He is absolute in His truth. He is absolute in His holiness. If we don't get God's nature right, we will easily and likely drift off into error. In fact, A.W. Tozer wrote in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. And so we would do well to follow suit when we are puzzled by some spiritual issue. God is light without darkness. This is our starting point. This is our starting point. When we share the gospel, this is the first point we make. And from there, we continue our explanation of the gospel by conveying some really bad news. That man in light of God's light, in light of his holiness, is sinful and doomed. And our text this morning could even be organized in the framework of sharing the gospel. Bad news is expressed, followed by the good news, the glorious good news being the remedy for the bad news. And so we'll take a couple passes through this text this morning. First, picking up on the bad news, then, in reverse order, we'll make our way back through the text, back to verse 5, our thesis statement, if you will, which is the foundation for biblical fellowship. So first off, I want us to see that fellowship with God and with man does not exist when we walk in darkness. Fellowship with God and man does not exist when we walk in darkness. Look at verse 6 with me. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, we deceive ourselves. We do not do 
the truth. The opposition was making the claim, hey, darkness isn't really that big of a deal. Don't be so negative about your life. You can have fellowship with God without being so caught up in sin or about sin. That's bad news. Bad news exhibit A. You cannot have fellowship with God and walk in darkness. Darkness and light are polar opposites. They are incompatible. Because God is the standard of light, we are not allowed to call darkness something it's not. And this is very, very reminiscent of what's going on in Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 20 reads this way. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is bad news. So in being led astray from a right understanding of God's character, John's opponents were about the business of redefining God's terms. No. We don't have that privilege. That's not ours. And that leads us to more bad news. If you look in the text at verse 8, John says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And so we go a little deeper into this pit of darkness. The opponents go from lying and not practicing what is known to be true to not having truth in them. And so we need to see here that fellowship with God and man does not exist when we claim sinlessness. Fellowship with God and man does not exist when we claim sinlessness. By claiming to not have sin, the opposition was making the claim that sin is nowhere connected to their identity at any level. But for John, that is just ludicrous it's deceptive and one commentator wrote this to say that we have no sin as in first john 1 8 is to conceive oneself as at least somewhat free from transgression and its penalty despite failure to give full acknowledgement to jesus that's exactly what the corrupt crowd wanted to bring people away from the true Jesus and his work. After all, Jesus could not have taken on flesh for anything material has to be evil. For more information on that, please go back into our sermon, sermon archive and listen to the first message in this series. But the God of light has the right perspective, always has, always will in identifying the sinfulness of man. We could go way back in the Old Testament to the book of Genesis and pick up at chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We could go ahead in uh, Psalm chapter 14. First three verses read this way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They 
do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. And there is none who does good. Not even one. And so in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 19, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light. So much did they love the darkness that they purposed in their hearts to redefine darkness itself, calling it light. This group of opposers likely didn't come out and publicly say in, in great quantities of crowds that they weren't following God. In fact, they were advocating a better way to follow God, one that didn't take sin so seriously, one that wasn't so negative about man's depravity. So much that they love the darkness that they purpose to live outside the zone that was sanctioned by the God whose very light ought to define the path of the believer. They were outside that zone. And so we go deeper into the text, deeper into the whole of man's depravity as we pick up in verse 10 and see what's written there. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In verse 8, the text read, if we say we have no sin. Here the text says, if we say we have not sinned. The former speaks of identity, and the latter points to an expression of that identity. But look at the result. We make him a liar. In essence, by claiming sinlessness, we make the God of light out to be the God of darkness. For if we follow a God who does not take sin seriously, we're not following the right God. We're only following a substitute that has been established by the hands of men to justify a certain end. But the God of light is never to be associated with lies. God forbid. Lying belongs to the darkness, belongs to the devil. John 8.44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So again, the opposers are living out. Isaiah 5.20, calling the darkness light, calling light darkness. And by doing so, they prove, as verse 10 tells us, that the word is not in them. The gospel has not taken root in them, the claim here, the claim here is that God 
is the one killing their happiness. God is the one killing our happiness by entertaining the reality of sin. He's the one who is guilty. We're innocent. We're fine. This is deception at its worst. This is the most depraved level of blame shifting. God is the liar. No. So here we have a portrait of the corrupt crowd that John wants the confused crowd to recognize and steer clear of. In essence, John says, look, the word is not in these people. They call God a liar. They're deceived into thinking they don't have sin. They say they can have fellowship with God by living in darkness, doing whatever they justify as right in their own minds and hearts. And in order to help the confused steer clear of error, John has to make the case that sin does exist. And it affects us. It's a reality for the unbeliever, and in a different sense, it's a reality in the life of the believer. But in no way, even though it's a reality, in no way does John want his audience to sin. And so look at chapter 2, verse 1 with me. My little children, what a tender way of putting it. John is a shepherd. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. He does not want them to sin. And he also does not want them to claim sinlessness because to do that would actually be to commit sin. So in order to experience fellowship, communion, spiritual relationship with God and with others, the answer is not to fake it, claiming sinlessness. Rather, the answer is to get real with our sin and then look to Jesus, who is the rescue. Look to Jesus. And so, fellowship with God and man does exist when we trust Christ. Fellowship with God and man does exist when we trust Christ. This is why the Spirit prompts John to continue writing in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. He does not say, if anyone sins, create a God in your own image to satisfy your own guilt and just pretend that you are sinless. No. He says, look to the God of light who sent his son as light to expose the darkness and give hope. When I was studying this text, my mind, my heart, they were prompted over and over and over and over to consider Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 5, which tell us, But God, but 
God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and what glorious words, by grace you have been saved. Yes, can I get more than that? Amen? By grace you have been saved. This is the point. But God, but God, because there was first a but God, there is an ongoing but if in Christ. He is our advocate when we sin. God knows better than we know that we are not sinless and will not be until the day of glorification. But He is the remedy. 1 John 4, verse 10 tells us, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Folks, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of this, humanity is separated from this God of light by an eternal chasm. But in Christ, He made a way for our rescue. He sent Him to be the propitiation. So what is that? What is a propitiation? I find Wayne Grudem's definition very helpful here. He simply writes, Propitiation is a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end and in doing so, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. In the quietness of our own hearts, just for a minute, let us just reflect together and meditate on these words from Scripture. 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews 9, 26. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin made us eternally deserving of God's wrath, but Christ bore our sins in his body that we might eternally know the love of God in Christ. And this remedy, John writes, extends to the whole world. We see that in verse 2 of chapter 2. What does that mean? 
what means that the blessings earned by the Son, being our propitiation, extend beyond the age of the apostles, beyond John's local community, to the ends of the earth, to those who would believe on the Lord Jesus. John 3.36 tells us, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. On the basis of Christ as the propitiation for our sins, John says in chapter 2, verse 1, that true believers have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, we're backtracking in the text here. We're not looking so closely at man's depravity, but we're looking at the remedy for man's depravity. And so I think we need to answer at this point the question, what then is an advocate? John doesn't want his audience, his little children, to sin. He does not want them to adopt the flawed logic highlighted in Romans 6 that believers can sin in order to experience more grace. Don't go there. That's just ludicrous thinking. Just as ludicrous as his opposition calling darkness light. The reality is that we still have remaining sin, though we belong to God through faith in Christ. That's why we read in Romans 6, 11, and then 12 through 14, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Continuing, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin. Though it exists, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And this beautiful word advocate literally means one called alongside to help. Counsel for the defense. What beautiful words we have in Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Christ, our advocate. One commentator is helpful here by saying, we have nothing that we can plead before God to gain us forgiveness of our sins. But Jesus Christ acts as our advocate, and enters his plea for us. Jesus can be our advocate because he died that we might have life. Jesus can be our advocate because he is the righteous one. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus Christ, the righteous. This means that those qualities of thinking and feeling and acting are through him, of his character, wholly conformed to the will of God. And he needs no rectification in heart or life. All of these things, perfect in every way, this belong, 
belongs to Christ alone. That's why he is deemed Christ the righteous one. And this righteousness then has been credited to our account by way of the cross through the faith gifted to us to place in Christ alone. And this is in part the goodness of Jesus, that he lives to hold up his shed blood as the guarantee of our eternal forgiveness for sins past, present, and future. And so we trust Christ. But what then is the mechanism? What then is the mechanism that connects sinners to the position of standing forgiven? The answer is found right here in our text. Verse 9 of chapter 1. Again, we're still making our way backward in the text. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we need to see that fellowship between God and man does exist when we confess our sin. When we confess our sin. Forgiveness is available to the whole world. The world of those who will confess. So the condition here is confession. The condition is confession. Another commentator writes, to confess sins is not merely to admit that we are sinners, but to lay them before God and to seek forgiveness. And if we do so, we can be sure of forgiveness and purification on the grounds of God's character. Confession involves action, not just acknowledgement. Confession is the doorway through which we believe unto salvation. It is also the mechanism by which we display or prove our ongoing fellowship with God and man. The text says clearly, if we confess our sins, if we lay our sins, our guilt, our shame before the Lord, then we have access into an assurance of forgiveness and cleansing. If, through the Spirit, God grants repentance. He grants faith. He gives us new life to see clearly our depravity and our only hope, that being to run to Jesus. So when we come to Jesus, we actively confess our sin. And we actively turn from it. And we do this by grace, through faith, into the domain of Christ, the Lord of light. And through our justified standing, the cleansing fountain is then continually available as we labor in his strength to cast off indwelling sin and continually put on the righteousness that is ours in Christ Jesus. As believers, if and when we confess our sins on a continual basis, we experience 
the ongoing reality of faithful and just forgiveness and cleansing. He is faithful. What does that mean? It means that he will do it because God is always faithful to his promises. He is trustworthy. He is just, meaning he can do it because his wrath was poured out once for all on Christ, our propitiation. So when we sin, the answer is not to avoid sin's existence in our lives. The answer is to quickly take it to the Father, knowing in Christ he stands ready to forgive, cleanse, and restore. Proverbs 8, 28 rather, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Psalm 32, verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. To be forgiven, to be let go of a debt, to be cleansed, to be washed of guilt, to be transformed, to be restored to what we're supposed to be in Christ, to be stored to biblical fellowship. This happens initially into a justified standing and continues as we are conformed more and more into the image of his son. But we need to keep backtracking through the text. Let us look at verse 7 of chapter 1. Fellowship between God and man exists when we trust Christ. Fellowship with God and man exists when we confess our sin. We're going to see something else here in verse 7, which tells us if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So write this down. Fellowship between God and man does exist when we walk in the light. It's very interesting to note here that John does not say, if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with God. Instead, he says, we have fellowship with one another. You see, the corrupt group was claiming a deeper relationship with God. One that denied the material world and one that highly downplayed worship in community. It was all about personal experience based on personal definitions of God's terms. There was no footing, no grounding in the God of light. But John wants his little children to have biblical fellowship, which includes both fellowship with the Father and the Son as well as those purchased out of bondage by the shed blood of Jesus. And if we are restored to true fellowship, that means we are in a position to walk in the light. And if we walk in the light, we will have fellowship with one another. And our fellowship with one another is only made possible if we have fellowship 
with the God of light. And if our fellowship is valid, then here we have the assurance that the death of Jesus, his son, was effective in purifying us, forgiving us our sin, and removing it. The blessing is promised to those whose fellowship proves genuine, that stands the test of validity. One's fellowship can only be genuine if it's rooted in the God of light, revealed by Christ, the light of the world. And so when we walk in this light, we will become acutely aware of the darkness of our sin. It's exposed by the light. But our confidence is not in our ability to dismiss our sin or justify it. Rather, it is to remember that it was dealt with ultimately at the cross. And so the second half of verse 7 reads, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John's word for cleansing does not simply imply forgiveness. It suggests the removal of defilement, the elimination of some stain, so that the consequences of that condition no longer have ongoing effects. And this is what the blood of Jesus does. It washes away our defilement initially unto a justified status, and then ongoingly as we are matured in the image of the Son, namely through a life of repentance and faith. God is true to his promise to complete this work. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. We are not cleansed based on the quality of our walking. Remember, we walk in the light. Christ is our light. We walk in His righteousness, not the potential of our own. And so this leads us back to this glorious verse in chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Because God sent Christ to be our propitiation that we might know forgiveness and have favor with him. Because God established Christ as the believer's advocate when they sin. Because God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us on the condition of our confession. Yes, though he grants the gifts of repentance and faith. Because of these realities, we can confess. We can have fellowship with other believers, and we can walk in the light, and we can belong to the God of light. And this is where our fellowship originates. This is where it is sustained through Christ in the one who made him known to a sinful world. So hear this clearly. There is no need to deny 
the reality of sin when we understand what God has done in Christ to deal with our sin. There is no need to deny the reality of sin when we understand what God has done in Christ to deal with our sin. And contrary to those who were corrupt, we can boldly, actively bring our sins before the Lord, knowing we have an advocate in Christ. This is what John wants his readers to understand. This is what he wants his readers to treasure. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. If the confused in his midst turn toward the corrupt, they will be deceived. They will wander from truth. They will go outside the bounds of walking in the light and thus proving themselves to not have a share in the God of light. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. To miss the mark of that claim is to deny the existence of sin and to make God out to be a liar. And so John pleads with his little children, stay in the light. Don't abandon truth. Bring your sin to the Lord and seek his forgiveness. Do not turn from the Lord and attempt to establish a false righteousness of your own. It will not work. Enjoy biblical, real fellowship with God and others as God intends. Now, in our modern context, what are we supposed to do with this text? To my knowledge, there is no one in this place denying that Christ took on flesh. That hasn't been an issue. And to my knowledge, no one is teaching publicly within this fellowship that darkness is light and God is a liar if you think you have to get real about your sin. We take sin very seriously around here, as we should. I would think that we have a pretty firm grasp of the gospel of grace. We enjoy it. We just sang about it all morning long. But maybe, maybe there's one here who has for a long time been suppressing the truth of God in their hearts, calling darkness light and denying the reality of sin in their life. Maybe that puts you in the category of the confused. If that's the case, understand the remedy for your eternal doom is not to deny sin's existence or to establish your own brand of religion. The answer is to bring your sin at the feet of Jesus, repenting, turning away from your transgressions against this glorious God of light. Seeking the forgiveness that is only available through the shed blood of Jesus. But maybe you're in the crowd of the committed. If so, praise God. 
praise God. You know that Jesus became sin in your place, that you might become the righteousness of God. Praise God. You know that Jesus is your advocate. Praise God. You know that darkness is indeed darkness and light is light. Praise God. But here's my counsel to you. Number one, persevere in right thinking. By God's grace, don't allow yourself to define terms in ways that Scripture forbids. Persevere in right thinking. Don't abandon the realm of light in which God has placed us. Number two, do not downplay the reality of sin in the life of the believer. Ask God to help you daily see the sinfulness of sin. And this will lead you to see the supremacy of the Savior. Number three, be aware of those in your life who might be vulnerable to false teaching, specifically about sin. Don't shy away from difficult conversations, but engage conversations winsomely, tenderly, truthfully, proclaiming the word to them. We have to deal with sin. Number four, spend time meditating. Meditating on and magnifying the fact that because of Christ, you have the privilege of fellowshipping with the God of light. Meditate and magnify the fact that you have the privilege of fellowshipping with others in the faith. That is such a privilege. Meditate on and magnify the fact that you are being kept from deception. That you have daily access into the cleansing fountain, the shed blood of Christ. Meditate on and magnify the fact that there is no sin that his shed blood can't handle. Meditate on and magnify the fact that God's truth is in us. God's word is in us. And may God be magnified as the God of light who made a way for us to know him and love him for all eternity. Amen? Let us pray. Father, it is good to know you, to be known by you. To have experienced the freedom of forgiveness. We once were lost in darkest night, but so grateful, so grateful 
Father, I pray that if there's one in this place who has not turned from the darkness and turned into the light, oh, Father, grant them the ability to see clearly the weight of their sin. Grant them repentance and faith that today they might taste and see that the Lord is good. Father, sometimes you'll lead your preacher to say a lengthy prayer. I simply want my words to be few so that we can do business with you. And so, Father, be with us now as we go through a minute or two of quiet reflection, silent reflection. Help us get real with our sin and help us see clearly the supremacy of our Savior. I pray this in Jesus' name.